I think that it's kind of at the limit of what you can do with an autonomous rover commanded from Earth. And so I think that it's kind of it's kind of pushed the boundaries, but it's also spurred people to think about other ways that we need to operate spacecraft. Treacherous terrain, freezing temperatures, and faulty drills. Over the course of five years on the surface of Mars, the Curiosity rover has certainly lived through a lot. Looking back from its fifth birthday, what have we learned so far from this flagship mission? We'll talk engineering legacy, science results, and what's to come. All this and more on today's episode of the We Martians Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 28 of the We Martians podcast. I'm your host, Jake Robbins. And welcome to the other end of the Mars Solar Conjunction. If you didn't know, Mars recently passed behind the Sun from the vantage point of Earth, putting us on the exact opposite side of our parent star. This happens once every 780 days or so, a slice of time we call a synodic period. That's about 26 months, which might sound familiar to you as well. It's the time between Mars launch windows. When Mars is behind the sun, we can't send radio signals to the spacecraft, and so the missions all stand down temporarily. Many of them go into kind of a hibernation mode. Rovers stay stationary and might be programmed to take passive measurements through the period. It lasts for about three weeks until Earth can catch up in its orbit, getting a glimpse of the red planet once again from the other side of the sun. This conjunction, the flagship mission Curiosity rover celebrated a pretty cool milestone, its fifth anniversary since landing. It was five years ago, on the August 5th, that the rover, tucked safely in the back shell and heat shield, plunged into the Martian atmosphere, making its way for Gale Crater. The dramatic seven minutes of terror culminated in one of the most incredible engineering feats in space history, the sky crane maneuver which gently deposited the one-ton rover on the surface. Since then, Curiosity has been slowly making its way up the slopes of Mount Sharp, and I thought this would be a great time to take a step back and look at the mission's results so far. When I decided to do this episode, I knew there was only one guest who could provide that broad perspective, both from the engineering and science sides. Emily Lactawalla is the senior editor at the Planetary Society, a geologist and expert science communicator. She's also writing a book about the mission, so I contacted her to learn more about Curiosity's journey so far. Okay, so we're here with Emily Lactawalla. Thanks for joining us today, Emily. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to talk to you today. Um, Curiosity is obviously a very special rover to anyone who's who's interested in Mars, so I appreciate you taking the time to uh, come chat with us uh, after its fifth birthday. I can't believe it's been five years on the surface. 
five Earth years, we should specify. Yes, that's true. And, you know, I should have looked up how many Mars years, uh, but there's all different kinds of calendars you have to keep watch. And the big thing that's happening right now in Curiosity is that we've had solar conjunction. So they couldn't do any commanding for a little while because the uh, Mars and the sun were in the same position in the sky as seen from Earth. So it's um, made communication a little difficult, but they're back in command and we'll be starting to drive again pretty soon. That's really exciting. So before we dig into it, I, I'd like to hear a little bit about my guests. So maybe you could tell me a bit about yourself, maybe your education and your background. Sure. Well, I uh, began as a geologist, a fairly traditional field geologist. In fact, my um, field area of where I did structural geology was right up against Canada in uh, northeastern Washington um, in a little area called the Kootenay Arc. I was looking at how um, this really cool uh, limestone conglomerate had gotten squashed during mountain building and was was using the pebbles as little strain markers. Um but I decided that I didn't want to do academia, and so I wasn't really sure what to do next. So I decided to teach middle school science for a couple of years, and I discovered that teaching um, ele- uh, teaching grade school is is much harder than being an academic. <laughs> so I went back <laughs> to graduate school, um, and I studied uh, planetary geology. So I was taking the kind of structural geology and the sort of field approach and the looking at, at how um, – uh, forces of mountain building shape landscapes, except that I was doing that on other planets instead of on Earth. And when you're doing that on other planets, humans don't yet get to go to the surfaces of other planets. So we study the rocks through the eyes of robots. And my work was using the Magellan Orbiter to study tectonics on Venus. Um But again, I decided academia is not the place for me. I was thinking that I might work in a science museum, perhaps developing exhibits or something like that, something I've always enjoyed explaining science to people. And I was just very fortunate to uh, stumble upon a job ad for this position at the Planetary Society, where uh, they were doing an education project, getting high school students from all over the world to participate in Mars exploration rover mission operations. And with my combination of having been a scientist teacher and uh, the geology background, I was the perfect person for that position. And I worked with um, a really fantastic groups of students from all over the world on various Mars related projects until they ended with the um, just a couple months after the landing of the Mars exploration rovers. And after that, um, the Planetary Society put me to work writing about space science for the website. And that's basically what I've been doing ever since. I really like your work with the Planetary Society. The the articles, what I what I like about Planetary Society's articles is it's not just like a uh, kind of a, a summary article that says, okay, hey, the rover went here and did some stuff. Stay tuned for more. Like you, you really get into the details about you know the scientists looking at at certain rocks and why they why they care about them and and why this rock's more important than that rock. And you know the length is something that maybe is a bit daunting for some people, but I <laughs> people like me just eat it up. So uh, I really appreciate the work you do there. So thank you. Well, thank you very much for being such a diligent reader. Yeah, I know <laughs> the things tend to get a bit long sometimes, but it is interesting and and I figure that. I serve a different slice of the public from um, the the group that, say, um, the the PR, the Public Information Office at NASA and JPL serve. You know, they have a mandate to um, explain what they're doing to the public, and they need to do that and reach as broad a segment of the public as they possibly can. And they reach out both to the general public and to the uh, mainstream media, and um, to a lesser extent to the science media. And I figure, um, you know, I can't really compete with NASA and JPL 
detail for how they do that work. But what I can do is dig deeper um, and get into a little bit more of the details and provide a little bit more of the scientific context for why all the different missions are doing what they do, um, why a particular investigation is being followed, and some of the kinds of tricky things that can that can trip up scientists and engineers as they try to explore the planets. That's great. But I guess um, writing these articles isn't the only long-form writing you're doing. You're also writing a book about curiosity, right? I am. And that's been a long haul. It should have been finished long before now. But um, it turns out curiosity is a rather complicated mission. <laughs> Who knew? Um, and so uh, that's ten, it's getting toward completion. Although I had a funny twist in the book writing process earlier this year. I spent um, about three months. I was very, very fortunate to be supported by the Planetary Society, spending three months focusing almost entirely on the book. And um, I made a huge amount of progress and almost finished, except that I realized that I had essentially almost finished two books. And so there's so much material. Um, I realized that I had written a book that I needed to write in order to write the book that I had intended to write. So <laughs> I needed to, there, there wasn't a resource where I could understand how the rover worked and how all its instruments worked. And there's no one person that I could interview who could tell me all of that stuff. There's really no one person who has it all in their head. And so the book that I've almost completed now is the one describing the engineering of the rover from its conception, its uh, initial design, its uh, development, assembly, launch, cruise, landing, and then now that it's on Mars, how all of its parts operate, how all of its instruments operate, and how its team actually operates the rover on Mars. So it's basically the engineering book explaining how the rover works. That one I am really hoping to be able to submit in really just a matter matter of weeks. I'm waiting on um, JPL for some uh, review of the of the text that I've sent to them so far. They have to check to make sure that I'm not uh, releasing any secrets that should not be released to foreign <laughs> nations. Um, and so once I get that from them, I should be pretty ready to submit that manuscript. But then that leaves aside all the science that you're talking about. You know, what has the rover actually done since it's landed? And um, so that book is is in process, and I hope to complete that in another year or so. Okay, that's really great. One of our, our listeners who supports us on Patreon, uh, Chase, had actually specifically asked uh, that I ask you about your book and whether you'd fallen into one or two. So it's it's, uh, yeah. it's good to know. It's definitely two. It should be exciting, actually, to have kind of the two perspectives of it, right? Because I think the science and the engineering are sort of, you know, two sides of the coin that have to work together, but they're they're very different perspectives. There are different perspectives, and often the two um, sides of a mission tend to be kind of pitted against each other because, um, I mean, obviously everybody on the mission wants to accomplish the mission's goals, but the engineers are generally the people trying to protect the spacecraft and keep it alive, and the scientists are always trying to push it to its limits to get the most out of it that they possibly can, and and sometimes they wind up in a kind of adversarial relationship. But on rover missions in particular, the two but scientists and engineers work extremely closely together, and there are a lot of scientists who who wind up kind of becoming engineers and and vice versa in order to get the most out of, the, of a rover mission. Actually, it reminds me, we, we were uh, fortunate enough last year to speak with Sarah Milkovich, who's uh, yes. uh, that, that kind of person basically trying to bridge exactly. those roles in, on the Mars 2020 rover. So yeah, I know all about that. Mm -hmm. So, okay, so talk to me about Curiosity. How is it doing today? Um, you know, what's the status of it? Um, I know it's it's been through some some stuff, you know, five years is, is a long time. So um, how's the rover doing just from a, you know, health perspective? 
Five years is a long time. It's doing really quite well, considering um, that it's operated on the surface of Mars for five years. Um, it's uh, Most of its instruments are still working as well as they were um, on the day of landing, which the reason that I qualify it that way is because there's one instrument, the REMS weather station instrument, that was actually damaged during landing. Its wind sensor was damaged. And so the wind experiment never really worked properly. And actually... Um, the, they managed to get some science out of it, but the rest of the sensors on the wind booms have now failed. So the wind experiment on the weather station is now completely defunct. However, the weather station has many other sensors. It has temperature and humidity and uh, ground temperature and air pressure and things like that. So that, um, uh, that instrument as a whole is still producing quite high quality science, very important science, just the wind sensor isn't working. Um, another instrument that's... Uh, that's actually really shocking that it's still operating is the Russian uh, neutron generating instrument. There's this uh, machine in the rear end of the rover that is able to sense neutrons coming up from the ground. Um, and that passive sensor is going is anticipated to keep working for a long time. But it has a, an active component that is able to generate neutrons that ping the ground. And they can use that to figure out where there is hydrogen and other materials under the surface. And that active neutron generator was expected to fail years ago, actually. It wasn't really expected to last more than a couple of years on the surface. And it's actually still operating to everybody's shock and, and uh, happiness. But um, they do expect that one to fail any day just because um, I, I forget the specific, I think it has to do with maintaining a vacuum in one of the components. And, you know, you, there's only so long you can maintain a vacuum before it'll fail and, and then that machine will no longer be operating. But its passive component will still work just as well as it always has. Um, Another instrument that has an interesting problem is there's uh, the color cameras are doing just great. They aren't really suffering in general, but once in a while they have to stare upwards um, at the zenith, at the you know stare straight overhead, and they use those uh, measurements to help understand how much dust there is in the atmosphere. And whenever recently it started that whenever they stare overhead, one of the eyes sees a darker sky than the other eye does, which doesn't make any sense. And they haven't really been able to figure out why the only theory or the hypothesis that they have is that there might be a chunk of, of dust or dirt inside one of the cans, one of the sort of baffles of the cameras, and that whenever they tip it upwards, it covers part of the glass. And then when they look back down again, it, it kind of slides back down and is no longer obstructing the point of view. That was the best idea that they had. But other than that, um, those the science instruments are all generally working pretty well. They have instruments that have consumable materials. So like the SAM uh, instrument, which is a very complex um, gas sensing, sniffing, chromatography experiment uses a limited supply of helium gas to puff materials around its interior. And they've used up about half of their helium. So they've, they've used up quite a bit, but they've got quite a bit left. And so they, you know, anticipate being able to function normally for a long time, but they do have to be cautious about using that limited material. Um, both SAM and Kemin have a limited number of sample cells, and they're, again, being conservative, trying to reuse sample cells so that they keep some pristine just in case they find something really unusual that they want to be able to put in a completely clean cell. Uh, they are capable of reusing older cells, but it does, um, over time, you know, you're your uh, the quality of their data will degrade if they keep on reusing the old cells. So they're just being cautious about all of that, but the consumables are, are all generally looking pretty good. 
Um, so that's for the instrument stuff. Now for the engineering stuff, for the rover parts, there are a couple of more significant problems. One of them is the rover wheels, which fairly early on in the mission, actually in around the Sol 400s, around the first anniversary of the mission, started um, having some serious problems with shredding as they were driving over um, these very sharp rocks. And with very close cooperation between the scientists and the engineers, they've managed to um, uh, interrupt that the development of those shredded wheels by simply driving over ter terrain that's more benign. So they pick a path from orbit that looks like it has more benign terrain. And then when they're on the ground confronting the next day's um, uh, plans for driving, the, the rover drivers steer around the worst of the rocks. And they've really managed to cut dramatically the rate of damage to the wheels. So the wheels are looking holy, uh, but they're not degrading any faster than um, than expected, and they're now expected to last as long as the spacecraft does. Oh, that's great. Um, yeah, they're in pretty good shape now. Um, the other really serious problem that they're having right now is with the drill. Mm -hmm. So there are a couple of different motor mechanisms on the on the drill tur on the turret at the end of the rover arm that have been having some problems, and the worst is with something called the drill feed mechanism. So the way that drilling works on this rover is that it presses the drill, the turret at the end of the arm against the ground with these two fingers that have sort of a studded surface that help brace the arm against the ground, keep it from moving when they're drilling. And once the rover has braced the arm, the arm doesn't move throughout the drilling. There's only one motor, or two motors actually, that move during drilling. One of them spins the drill. I'm sorry, there are three motors that move. One of them spins the drill. One of them hammers the drill. There's a percussion mechanism. And then the third one advances the drill toward the ground. And it's that third one that they're having the most serious problem. So they can spin the drill and they can hammer the drill, but they actually can't move the drill toward the ground. So they can't actually advance it into the ground, which is a pretty serious problem. So that's those stabilizing things are kind of actually getting in the way then because you can't move the arm anymore forward, right? Exactly correct, yeah. yes. And so um, for a long time, they've been troubleshooting the problem, trying to figure out if there are different ways they can operate the drill feed to make it work more reliably. Because sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. They've been trying to decide, well, if we apply different voltages or if we pull on the brake in a different way or with the two brakes instead of one brake, they've, they've been trying all of these different um, troubleshooting techniques, and they just haven't found anything reliable that, that they can reliably advance the drill feed um, in order to do drilling operation. So now they're considering something a little bit more, um, I guess, risky, but uh, not risky to the rover, just risky to the function of the drill. But since they can't use the drill anyway, they might as well try something that's a little riskier. And what that is, is to um, make the drill feed advance just once and leave it advanced and basically give up on those bracing prongs to actually use the arm to move the drill into the rock as the drill is spinning and percussing. And so this is, um, you know, it, it's clearly a lot less controlled, but um, the worst thing that can happen probably, and this is me speculating <laughs> here, this is not the mission speaking, I just want to make that very clear, but the worst thing that could happen is that the drill could bind in the rock. I mean, you've done that, I'm sure, with a wood drill, you're drilling and you lean on it, it's not quite the right angle, and the whole thing just comes to a halt because the drill is binding. Um, 
and they planned for that. The The rover is, is capable of pulling on the drill with a huge amount of force. So the arm can, can just lift up and just yank it out of the rock. And if that's not successful, they have one more mechanism in the drill called a drill chuck mechanism. They can actually release the chuck and leave a drill bit stuck in the ground. And there are two more drill bits in bit boxes on the front of the rover. So they can release it and exchange it for an, another new drill bit if, the, if it really comes to that. So that's what they're doing right now with the drill. It's um it's really unfortunate because they've just gotten to do to the very different kinds of rocks from the ones that they landed on. And it's I'm sure all the scientists are super sad they're not getting their samples right now. But JPL engineers are very resourceful and so I have reasonable hope that they're gonna be able to start getting samples in some way again. Yeah, it's, I've been following the drill saga for for a while now, and it's uh, it's starting to make me nervous too. Because this is kind of how uh, whenever I read about you know older spacecraft, and it's never just like one day it stops working. It's kind of like a slow yeah. decline, and I'm just I worry that this is just part of that slow decline, and and then it's this is the the part where they they get to where they say yeah the drill doesn't work anymore. You know? Yeah. Well, it is, but you know these these spacecraft they they get operated until every last mechanism has given up the ghost, and so it is part of Curiosity's slow decline. But its slow decline is going to include a great deal of science before the end. Um, there's one more engineering aspect of Curiosity that is degrading, and that one was known about from the beginning, which is that this thing is powered by the decay of radioactive plutonium, and the plutonium is decaying. And so the power output from the um, uh, radioisotope thermoelectric generator, or RTG, is declining over time. And um, the rover, the RTG put out about 110 watts when they landed. And I think um, off the top of my head, it's down to like 90-ish now, which is still plenty. Um, But it does mean there's a little less power available Uh, The rover needs about 40 to 50 watts at all times, even when it's shut down and sleeping. It just needs that much for survival. And so when the power output decays down to that level, they're not going to be doing much at all with the rover. They'll probably be able to get creative and use less power while sleeping. Um, But even then, if you've only got 20 watts to spare, you know, you're probably not doing a lot of driving or arm motion. So there is going to be this long, slow decline with this rover where it will have to do a lot more just sitting Um, It will be able to do remote sensing, like uh, taking photographs and doing radio studies and doing chem-cam laser shots, but it will be able to do less and less driving and arm movement over time. And so um, probably they'll, you know, they'll cope with that just by operating, commanding the rover less frequently, you know, maybe command it only twice a week and leave extra days for battery charging in between those commanding days. And so that way they'll be able to operate it more cheaply as well. Um, so we're not, we're not at that stage yet, but in a couple of years, we're going to start seeing, I think, reduced activity from the rover, particularly in wintertime when temperatures drop. Do you think that that's going to be the limiting factor in the lifespan of Curiosity? Um, I don't, you know, I, I try not to make predictions, but it certainly will be the thing that kills Curiosity if nothing else does. It's the, it's the bounding so, on that side of the equation. Yes. <laughs> and uh, what's interesting is that the longer that opportunity survives, the more likely that opportunity is going to wind up having a longer functional lifetime than curiosity does. Right. Which right. is just amazing when you think about it. <laughs> I'm sure no one would have guessed that that was how that was going to play out. That's for sure. No. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, we've been talking about the engineering, which is uh, cool. What do you think the, like, as far as... um 
Curiosity's impact on on pushing the boundaries of, of spacecraft engineering? Like, what's what's its legacy going to be? Like, when we look to the the next rover and the rover after that, what are the parts of Curiosity that are going to live on through that that are so successful? Um, you know, it's an interesting question because Curiosity is it's it's been mission success. It's a more capable rover than than anything that's ever been sent to another planet before. It's very complicated. Um, I think that it's kind of at the limit of what you can do with an autonomous rover commanded from Earth. And so I think that it's kind of it's kind of pushed the boundaries, but it's also spurred people to think about other ways that we need to operate spacecraft. We need to either make spacecraft more autonomous so that they can make more decisions on their own and don't need this grueling um, human in the loop step for every single day of operations. Or you need to have um, people much closer so that they can actually actively operate the robots instead of being uh, off-site and sending commands once per day. With uh, Mars 2020, which is based uh, a, a lot on the engineering design of the Curiosity rover, they're planning to do a lot more um planning to put a lot more of autonomy in the operations. And it's not just artificial intelligence on board the rover. It's also artificial intelligence in the Earth software, where they will be able to, where on Earth, the the systems, the software systems that are used to build the sequences for the rover are also smart, that you can give them a, a, a you know, a less sort of command, you know, a less sort of granular level of detail in what you want the rover to do, that instead you'll you'll have a more of a graphical user interface that you can use to build the command sequences. And so that hopefully the Earth operations will be less onerous for the 2020 rover than they are for the Curiosity rover. Hmm. So kind of like a, you know, like click here, add a chem cam measurement, add a, a drill sample and go one kilometer build plan <laughs> <laughs> kind of yeah maybe not exactly like that but but the idea is you know basically you'd have more of a you know drill at this site command as opposed to the um all of the multiple steps that they have mm-hmm. to do in order to get there now um so i think that the the legacy you know it's it's not not necessarily in specific hardware it's actually more in software and systems that it's really been spurring um a lot of development i guess in so many things in in the world today it's software development is really what's pushing the boundary right it really is. And and unfortunately, that's actually one of the things that I've had the most difficulty writing about. Now, in part, it's because I'm not a software engineer. That's like the farthest from my capability. <laughs> but also, it's because that's the kind of technology that's being developed. All of this AI, this intelligent software, that's the stuff that our government doesn't really want to share with governments around the world. So also very little of it is written down in places that I can get to the information. And even if I could ask people about it, they they couldn't tell me because, or if they did, then I couldn't tell anybody else. It would be illegal. And so um, that kind of information is actually not captured in a way for the public because uh, it's it's all protected information. Well, you have to keep it out of the hands of foreigners like me. So That's right. Dangerous <laughs> Canadian. Yeah. More from Emily Lakdawalla, the five-year Curiosity mission, and the science results so far when we return. My name is Anthony, and I'm a Martian. My name is Paul, and I'm a Martian. My name is George, and I am a Martian. I love what I do. But while the We Martians podcast is and always will remain free, putting it together is not. But that's where you can help. By contributing as little as $1 per month, you can join me in exploring Mars. Pay what you want for as long as you want and get access to cool perks like bonus content, chat hangouts, and the opportunity to submit questions for interviews. Head over to patreon.com slash we Martians and sign up today. 
That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash We Martians. And tell the world that you are a Martian. Okay, so we've talked lots about engineering. Let's talk a little bit about the science, um, which is you know equally exciting in my uh, mind. So if we roll back, you know, five years landing, what were the initial science objectives of this mission? Like what, what did Curiosity actually set out to discover? Well, one of the funny things about the Curiosity mission is that its its main objective was almost accomplished before they landed during the landing site selection process because of the amazing eyesight of the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter mission and help from ESA's Mars Express mission. Um, because the the main goal was to uh, land in and quantitatively assess the potential for life in a in a habitable environment on Mars, basically determine if there was such a thing as a habitable environment and then investigate it. And um, we, it turns out that we were basically certain that the kinds of rocks that Curiosity was going to investigate represented a past Martian habitable environment before we landed. Now, we weren't 100% certain, and ground truth is important, and it's uh, really, it's often true in planetary science that the thing that you think is true about the surface turns out to have nothing whatever to do with what you thought when you were looking at, at orbital photos. But when you have a camera like, like HiRISE on Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter that can take 25-centimeter resolution images, um, you really get a lot more specific understanding of what sh- processes shape the rocks than you do when you're looking at, say, you know, Viking resolution, you know, 25 meter or something like that. Um, so it was pretty certain that Curiosity was going to find a sedimentary environment, a place where water had carried sediments and deposited it and then turned it into rock. And so sure enough, Curiosity went there and found it. Now, Still, we had never actually investigated up close a thing like an environment like this on Mars before. Right at the outset, Curiosity drove past these amazing conglomerate rocks. It looked just like broken concrete with like all the gravel inside the concrete. And we knew that those kinds of rocks had to exist on Mars because we have all this evidence for rushing rivers, but we'd still never seen them before. So it was super exciting to see that stuff for the first time. And then... um, from a distance, you couldn't be totally certain that these flat-lying layered rocks were sedimentary. They could have been igneous. They could have been lava flows that had put, spread lava down on a flat layer on the surface and then hardened into layers. And so it is really important to have confirmed that. But that was really just a baby step for Curiosity. And and now what Curiosity has really accomplished is to explore a whole stack of sedimentary rocks that represent um, a fairly significant chunk of geologic time and see how the environment, the sedimentary environment, and therefore the climate environment shifted over space and time as Curiosity has been driving upward through the rock record and also across from one kind of environment into a different kind of sedimentary environment. That's one of my favorite things about Curiosity. It's it's like it's like a traveling time machine it just just drives up yeah. this hill and it goes through different periods in, in mars history i mean that's what geology is all about and geologists um space geologists are usually frustrated because you know when you're a geologist on earth when you're trained as a field geologist you look for places where there has some process has sliced through rocks mm-hmm. and um if you're lucky enough to live in 
like the basin and range, the basin and range like the Rockies, then mountains are those slices. And if you are not so lucky, or if you happen to like lower, older mountains, like in the Appalachians, where I got my geology degree, you have to look for road cuts, <laughs> which is why you often see geology field trips in road cuts. And so you need these these vertical cuts through the landscape. When you look at a planet from orbit, you don't usually get those vertical cuts. You're looking down in map view. So you sort of have to guess at what the vertical relationships are between rocks. You, there are certain things, certain features that you can see that can give you information about which one is younger and which one is older. But the fact that Curiosity is able to drive through this landscape that has vertical slices through layers of rocks, it's the first time we've ever done this on another planet. And so it's so thrilling for the geologists on the team to be able to actually have that traditional geologist side view of the layer cake of the sedimentary rocks. Yeah, it makes all those those panoramas so so viable. In addition to being you know beautiful, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, what what is uh, in your opinion? If we just ask Emily, like, what's the most exciting uh, result for you? Like, what what you know got you kind of jumping for joy? Oh gosh, that one's a, a tough one to answer. I mean, for me, it really is the the fact that we can read changes in the environment over time. I mean, it's it's the fact that you can build this stratigraphic column and see that um, over here there were rivers, and over here uh, we have evidence for a very um, a calm lake with sediment slowly settling, and so. Um, I mean, I, it's just the fact that we can apply traditional geology to Mars now is, is is for me very exciting. It's actually rather early in the um, scientific results stage for Curiosity because you can you can only tell a story after you've read the whole after you've read the entire story, right? After you read the whole book and. Curiosity spent the first uh, two years of the mission driving over just the first kind of rock, and then it spent another two years exploring two more new rock units, but it was kind of going up and down in elevation, so it was going back and forth through time through these two new rock units, and now it's finally gone into the third era, so we're just really reading the third chapter of the book that Curiosity's reading, so we've got like some early impressions of what all the characters are doing, to extend a metaphor too far, um, but we haven't finished reading the story yet, and so we don't really know where it's leading yet. And that seems to be another uh, problem with, you know, as we get better at building these spacecraft and they get kind of more instruments and they can transmit the data faster and we can take more measurements and do more investigations, kind of sifting through all that data is no easy task anymore, right? Well, that's that's part of it. But also, it's just the, the evolution of the type of mission. I mean, you, you start out with the flyby, then you orbit, then you land, and then you sample return. Those are sort of the four traditional stages of... of um, missions. And of course, we've only completely gone through that for the moon and um, to a lesser extent, uh, just once with um, an asteroid. Although the samples that were brought back from the asteroid by the Hayabusa mission to Itakawa were just the tiniest little bits of dust. And so they're trying to do that again now with another Hayabusa mission, also with NASA's OSIRIS-REx mission. So um, Mars is the next most complete of those steps. You, you start with the flyby and um, when you begin, when you just do your first flyby, you really don't know what you're going to find. You can have some guesses based on spectra and stuff like that. But you make all kinds of just discoveries just with the very first picture that you send back. That's that's just what happened with, with Pluto, you know, two years ago. Is yeah. it two years ago now? I guess it is. <laughs> 
Yeah. Holy cow. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, uh, in a way, those discoveries are, are easy. And it's just a matter of describing your pictures, describing your data. That's, and, you know, that's just how fast can you write? <laughs> you know, that's, that's when you make those discoveries. And then once you've made those first observations, then you know a little bit better what you're dealing with. And you can send an orbiter to make a map. And then you get a little bit better look at, okay, globally, what is this world doing? And so for those missions, it takes longer because it takes a while to make a map. You have to be there for at least months, sometimes years, in order to make your complete map. And so those are missions like Messenger and Dawn at Vesta and Ceres where they build up their maps. And it still takes, you know, probably a year after you're done with your map to really get into the scientific results. And now for Mars, we did that. We finished that part of the process with Viking back in the um, 80s. You know, that process of making maps was going on and we were getting this first complete look. And so now that we're in this kind of third approaching the fourth stage of Mars exploration, the science is, you know, you can't just make a discovery with a picture anymore. You have to, you're delving really deeply into the details. You've got much more sophisticated questions, but it means that it takes a lot more effort to write your answers. The other thing is that because we have so much data, the science on Mars has gotten a lot more local. You have people who specialize on Mars's northern polar cap or who specialize in glacial features in the mid-latitudes of Mars or, or in you know a particular volcanic complex. And so... Um, that kind of investigation, it takes longer to build up the expertise, longer to develop the more detailed story, and it's also longer and more difficult for a person like me to explain those stories to the public because it's it's really down in the details. And so um, it's sort of it, it, it's kind of sad because it it gets a little bit less immediately exciting to the public, and I think that's one reason why it's so wonderful that the rovers and um, and also high rise that they they share the images instantly with the public or nearly instantly because then you still you get to participate in the joy of seeing these features for the first time and that kind of sates your uh, appetite until the years later when you finally begin to get the scientific results that come from this work yeah yeah i i know it's, it's it, to me it's very exciting thanks to curiosity and also it's also thanks to the support that curiosity gets from the other spacecraft that we we get to know an area on mars so well like just the the, the no like i feel like i know more about gale crater than i do about some places on earth you know which is <laughs> sure <laughs> which is interesting so well earth has all this pesky vegetation in the yeah. way <laughs> it causes real problems but you know i did my first um satellite image processing work as an undergrad doing the summer research project with landsat data and uh, Landsat is, by the way, an uh, absolutely amazing series of satellites. And now they're doing a much better job at making that data accessible to the public. And Landsat has, I think, um, 45 or 50, I forget the number, uh, years of continuous coverage. So when there are things like vegetation changes or flooding or land use changes, you can you can just cover all of you can see all of it continuously with all of this Landsat data. And um, so you can know more about your neighborhood than perhaps you uh, you know off the top of your head. But on the other hand, vegetation's a pain, water's a pain, clouds are a pain, and these humans making their structures all over the landscapes are messing everything up. So that's one of the nice reasons to study other planets is that it's a lot simpler. Actually, Mars is simpler than Earth because it doesn't have this annoying life everywhere that's that's mucking up everything. Yeah, yeah. 
Okay, so let's extend your metaphor a little, little further. So, what are what are the next chapters in in this curiosity story? Where is it headed to next, um, and what can we expect to find when we get there? Well, curiosity has always been headed toward this mountain at the at the center of Gale Crater, um, and I think people are generally disappointed to hear that curiosity never intended to climb the mountain. <laughs> the interesting rocks in the mountain are actually at the base of the mountain, and so. Um, Curiosity's first couple of years were getting to the base of the mountain and exploring these first two layers at the very bottom. And those are the oldest layers. And now, then Curiosity had to drive around this set of modern sand dunes. Um, So they're sand dunes that are actually active right now. And that was another target of, of Curiosity's science investigation was to study the sand and the processes of these active sand dunes moving. And But now it's past the um, sand dunes behind and has finally reached this major boundary in terms of mineralogy and rock type. So what Curiosity is doing right now is approaching a new feature um, with a new type of rock for Curiosity that used to be called Hematite Ridge. It's now known as Vera Rubin Ridge after the astronomer. And... Um, from orbit, it's called hematite ridge because from orbit, we've been able to see that there is hematite contained within the rock. Now, Curiosity has seen hematite in other rocks. So it's it's not an unusual mineral for Mars. It's an iron oxide. Um, it's an oxidized iron oxide. So it tells you about a time when there was a more oxidizing environment instead of a more reducing environment. Um, so there, there was probably some kind of change in chemistry either in the Martian atmosphere or in the environment in which the sediment was deposited at the time that made this rock have this different kind of chemistry from the rocks that Curiosity has explored in the past. Um, it would be really lovely if Curiosity could drill into this rock. I think it remains to be seen if the rover will be able to. But certainly the rover is going to zap it with ChemCam and study it with the cameras and... Um, maybe scoop up some sediment with the scoop. If nothing else, they can still use the scoop to get um, loose soil and sift it and get it into the instruments. Um, and so we're going to be seeing a, a younger age uh, with a diff- preserving evidence for a different kind of environment, either different depositional environment, different atmospheric environment, and we'll get a new part of the story. Then beyond the ridge, there's another kind of rock that contains a lot more clay minerals. And clays are what you get when you subject um, the regular uh, lava minerals to lots of water. You break up the the crystalline um, igneous minerals and stuff a lot of water into those minerals. And you turn these really strong, blocky silicate minerals into weaker, uh, platy clay minerals. And we've seen clay minerals here and there by curiosity on the way here, but there's this big honking signal that you can see from orbit in this area beyond the ridge. So there's going to be really cool mineralogy and chemistry where curiosity is going over the next year or so. Awesome. Okay. All right. Is there any like specific uh, like science result that you're really excited to maybe get or, or hope to get? I and, mean, you know, we don't always know what it's going to be when we <laughs> find it, but... Um, I'd, I'd really love to just be able to track 
a long-term change in the chemistry of the Martian atmosphere. I mean, we they're already doing that to some extent. So um, they have instruments um, that can test the uh, isotopes in the atmosphere, and they can tell you, they confirm something we already knew pretty well, but it's again, it's always nice to confirm things. They confirm that Mars has lost a lot of its atmosphere. And then they looked at... Um, some of these these most ancient minerals that they drilled into in a place called Yellowknife Bay, and they found good evidence that Mars had lost some of its atmosphere, as recorded in those rocks. So it so you actually now have a sort of an intermediate data point for the time series of of when Mars lost its atmosphere. So instead of just in the past, we know it formed with one amount of hydrogen and all these other things, and now we have this depleted atmosphere. Now we have this this intermediate data point. And it's going to be interesting to add more points into that to see the time series. Was it like linear? Was there an episode? Did it happen very suddenly? Um, can it tell us something about when Mars lost its magnetic field? Um, or does it maybe tell us something about a big episode of volcanism that happened in Mars past? Um, these things aren't going to be easy to tease out because with sedimentary rocks, you have multiple different signals that make the chemistry. You have what the sediment started out as you have what the environment was like when the rock when the sediment was deposited you might have different signal from when the sediment was turned into rock but geologists are good at that kind of stuff and you know they can they may have to tell you multiple stories but they at least the evidence will allow you to to come up with some possible explanations for what this the history is telling you and i'm looking forward to those stories being told hmm. is there like the results that come from curiosity are they already shaping the questions that we're going to ask on Mars 2020 and, you know, the, the missions that follow that? You know, Mars 2020 is actually a very different mission from Curiosity. Even though the rover looks the same, it's it's got a different focus. Um, Curiosity has really established that there were these habitable environments on Mars. 2020 is really a sample collection mission. So instead of continuing, I mean, they, they will certainly be doing the kind of field work that Curiosity has been doing, because when you collect samples, you want to document the regional geology, you want to understand the environment in which the samples were deposited. But you also want to collect a wide variety of different kinds of materials so that if we do manage to get these samples um, collected and returned to Earth, that, you know, that gargantuan effort has some... Um, results in the form of a, a, a wide variety of different questions that you can ask those materials. And so you want to be able to to collect a, a whole host of different things, not just sedimentary rocks, but also igneous rocks and, and modern sediments and things like that. Okay, well, uh, Emily, this has been fantastic. Uh, thanks so much for joining us and, and celebrating Curiosity's birthday. We're, uh, we're hoping for five more years at least, right? Yeah, here, here. It's been my pleasure. That's all, Martians. I hope you enjoyed this broader perspective on one of the most famous Mars missions ever. If you check out the show notes on www.wemartians.com, I've posted some information and videos about Curiosity to supplement the show, as well as some information about Emily. You can find Emily on Twitter at elactawalla. I especially encourage you to watch the 7 Minutes of Terror video, a production from JPL showing the landing sequence of Curiosity which continues to amaze me every time I watch it. As always, make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcatching app, and be sure to follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at we underscore Martians, as well as Facebook and Instagram at we Martians. And if you're one of our Patreon supporters, there's about five minutes of bonus audio from this interview that you can listen to. 
I just implemented a bonus content RSS feed that you can input into your podcatching app. So you can actually have all the bonus content right on your mobile device as if it was another podcast feed. Check out your personal RSS feed on Patreon's website. That's all, Martians. See you next time. Thank you.